Why don't we begin reading? This is the third chapter of Job. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan, Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves. Or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not a hidden stillborn child? As infants who never see the light. There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul? Who long for death, but it comes not. And dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me. And what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Let's pray. Oh God, you are the great initiator, the relational one the desiring one, the inviting one. And we ask that you would be true to yourself in these moments, that even in the midst of us pondering and considering the darkness of despair, in the disillusionment that follows devastation, in the crying and the murmuring that comes from all things seeming to be lost, God, would you meet 
us in this. We ask as well that you would be true to your word, a word that does not come back void. We don't say in stuttering voice, we cry aloud for wisdom from this book. We desire, we invite you to cut us, to move, to separate joint and marrow, to uncover and reveal the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. That's our desire. That's our longing. And God, I specifically ask for those of us who have met the sort of despair that we see here in Job's words, maybe some of us who are in this moment even now, God, would you pour out grace? Give us an ability to see you, even slivers of light that is you who dwell in unapproachable light, that in the midst of darkness that you would come. You would bring a dawn of mercy on our suffering. God, that's our hope. It's our only hope. So we ask that you'd meet us, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. For any of us that have suffered, I believe that most of us would understand and realize that one of the most devastating impacts of tragedy is the way that it hangs on, the way that it stays in your gut and in your mind and in your brain long after you feel it's socially acceptable to keep talking about it. You worry perhaps that your friends, those who love you the most and come around you, have tired, not rudely, but simply because life has to move on, and yet you find yourself on a constant carousel, rehearsing again and again the tragedy, the calamity, the suffering, the pain. It simply will not leave you. And so once the devastation is gone, once the shock is gone, once the pain of the initial blow is gone, you are left there. You're no longer scraping boils with pottery, but in those moments, the months, the years that follow, despair sets in, and that despair is seemingly fueled by a completely insatiable desire to know why. Your mind is consumed with reasons. You see injustice, you see hopelessness especially in suffering and tragedy that seems to be absurd or random or unjustified, you can get caught in a cycle where the initial pain subsides, but despair looms largely over your life. And this is the moment, this moment of despair, past the initial shock, past the initial grieving, that we find Job in the third chapter of this book. And I believe that we're going to find very, very quickly that for him, though he's faithful, though to this point he's been blameless, though he was set up, it seems like perfectly to endure the kind of suffering that he encountered, that none of us, Job included, is saved from the torment of wondering, is God with us? Is he for us? Is there a point to this life? What reason lies behind my sadness? And what we find in the midst of this kind of despair, in the midst of this kind of tragedy and this kind of suffering, that almost always the target of our trials, when trials come, the target of them, they do not stop until they have laid straight upon the focus, the center of our trust. The target of our trials nearly always settles in the, on the center of our trust. 
forcing us to ask questions about what it is we're relying upon. The place of our pleasure, the place of our fulfillment and satisfaction is exposed unbearably so in the midst of trials. And we begin to ask questions that perhaps it was easy to ignore for a long time previous to that. And this is where we find Job. And what we discover is in the midst of his lament that despair and doubting sound very, very similar. And this is a common, common experience. I'm going to try to walk through this text again, and we're going to find some of the temptations for a sufferer to settle into and live in a moment of despair that seems an awful lot like doubt. We'll walk through it, and then my desire, my longing, my hope this week has been that I could be helpful to you to make some observations about the practice of lament and then to help us lament better. How's that for a sort of practical takeaway, right? I love going to church. They help me despair better. It's just, it's really good. My repertoire of despairing is just burgeoning, right? No one likes these sorts of things, but my, my hope is, my desire is that you begin to see the gift that it is for us to peek into other people's despair and see how God meets them so that we might become better at lament. It would serve our souls if that was the case. So let's walk through. There's basically three sections of Job chapter 3. It breaks up into three little things. There's a short narrative introduction where this narrator who has given us views and pictures of a throne room, he gives us information that Job is not privy to. This is part of the reason the story is so compelling to us. There's a short introduction from the narrator, and then there's three sections. Job is suffering, and he curses life itself. He says in the first ten verses of Job chapter 3, essentially, that he was born to suffer. He says, that day let it be cursed. Then, after that, he wonders if I could not have been not born. That's the first step in let's escaping this kind of endless cycle of disillusionment that he's in. If I could have not been born, then he begins to long and wonder, why are we fattened only to be slaughtered? Verses 11 to 19, he wonders, why is it that I was blessed and received and cared for and loved only to have those things torn away from me? And then finally, in 20 to 26, we see in all of its bare and raw emotion, longing for death. Why do those who encounter suffering, having once been born, having once been blessed, having once been fattened to be slaughtered, why in the midst of suffering and trial are they not simply taken away? Their longing for death met with an escape. That is the sense that Job is giving us. There's an interesting thing at the beginning of this. The narrator says, after this, Job opened his mouth. You see, to this point, one of Job's major, major positives, one of the takeaways from his life up to this point is the fact that he remained so quiet. Isn't that been the the awe, the wonder of this? You meet Job in the first two chapters of it, and you just think like, oh, come on, right? Like, I scream at swerving cars in traffic, more than Job opens his mouth and screams to this point. Like, really? Come on. And after this, well, what is after this? At the end of chapter 2, Job takes a period of seven days. He lies in ash and grieves 
This is a common theme in the ancient Near East. Seven days would have been a period of mourning that was sufficient and normal. When Jacob dies in Genesis 50.10, Joseph goes and it says that all of the people of Israel with a very great reverence and a great lamenting mourned for seven days the loss of their father. It's all throughout the Old Testament. And so for seven days, Job remains quiet. He's brooding. He's grieving. He's weeping. He has been reduced to a form of rubble of his past life, so much so that his best friends who come say they cannot recognize him. There's hints of sort of a Christological kind of a type here. You recall, of course, that of the Savior, it was said that he was beaten so that he could not be recognized. And this is the condition that Job is in. His suffering has been such that for seven days, he simply wept and grieved and mourned. And in his silence, he honored God. And now, in the beginning of chapter 3, his mouth opens and he curses the day of his birth. I don't believe that anything, of course, is sort of just like a dink, right? As my mom might say. What a dink! Doesn't that just sound Midwestern to you? Nothing is, of course, a coincidence, right? But it's intriguing that he's cursing the day of his birth because my birthday was just last week, right? So I'm studying and thinking, like, now I know I'm getting older, and how many of us have thought, like, well, there's a reason for cursing these birthdays as they come, right? It's, but I, you obviously see that the devastation is much deeper than this. I'm not quite at the point where I could ever imagine uttering, despite the fact that I make a ton of jokes about turning 29, I've never been to the point where I would lament of my day of birth quite like this. He curses it. You know, one of my favorite jokes about birthdays comes from a guy named Dave Barry. He's a Florida native. This almost has no connection or any helpfulness to the sermon whatsoever, but anytime you can tell a good Dave Barry joke, you should. He said, you know, there comes a point in every person's life when you ought to stop expecting people to make a big deal out of your birthday. Makes sense, right? There comes a time when you need to stop expecting people to make a big deal out of your birthday. That day is age 12. That's what what Dave Barry said. Job is making a big deal out of his birthday, except in the opposite sort of way. He's cursing it. He introduces imagery here that I believe is going to serve us for the rest of the book. In narratives, you guys know this, right? In good storytelling, there are things that are introduced that will keep coming up, and they will help us as we go throughout the rest of the book. One of the major themes to show the metaphor of his disillusionment, the fact that to be disoriented is one of the major aspects of lament is this introduction of the concept of darkness. You see how many times he says, let that day be darkness. Let there no be no light to shine upon it in verse 4. Verse 5 again, let deep, deep darkness claim it. Verse 6, he imagines it as this night, let thick darkness seize it. Over and over and over again, darkness. He wants to undo. Light is the initiating force of creation God opened his mouth and said, let there be light. It's an expression of who he is. And Job is calling out and saying, I want that all to be undone. If I was born in a moment of creation and light, I desire it to be backed up, reverse. Please be kind, rewind, and go straight back. No VHS users? No, no light, he says. Darkness only, darkness only, darkness only. And more than that, of course, darkness is a good metaphor for us to consider what disillusionment looks like. 
He's been walking through his life. He's blessed with cattle and sheep and family and friends. And it's as though in the midst of his path, someone turned out all of the lights. And so he is describing the condition of his own heart. In verse 8, we get introduced to a character that's going to be fun later on. He's one of my favorite middle school characters from Job because I wondered if there were dinosaurs in the Bible. In verse 8, he says, let those who curse it, let those curse it who curse the day. Apparently, there are people in this known world who are sort of magic workers who would attempt to curse days. And in one of the major, major sort of myths of that time, there's this mythological creature, Leviathan, who's imagined as a sort of dragon-like figure that could be conjured up. And one of the things that Leviathan did is he wrapped his body around the sun. It was an ancient explanation in mythology for why we had things like eclipses and what was the thing that was just the other week? The blood moon or something like that. He's calling forth and he's essentially saying, my despair has gotten so bad. Yes, you, you magic worker person, you crazy person, can you do that? Can you blot out the sun? Then do that. Rouse up that Leviathan figure. He is done with the day of his birth. This is bitter. This is despair that is raw and honest. This same kind of cursing of birth is not even unique to Job. Jeremiah, chapter 20, you could go there sometime. Jeremiah says nearly the identical sort of thing. Upon suffering, he's put in the stocks and beaten for for giving testimony and prophetic witness to the judgment that's coming upon Israel. And in Jeremiah 20, he curses the day of his birth. And if it's not enough to curse the day of his birth, he then looks back and he curses every moment of care and instruction that he's had his entire life. Why did I not die at birth, just come out of the womb and expire? And if not that, why was I given mac and cheese? Why so many bruises on my knees fixed up with band-aids? Why so much care from those who love me? Why God superintending my life through every meal and every drink of water and every bit of blessing only to have all of those things robbed from me? These are the ponderings of his heart. He begins to describe despair and disillusionment. And these are some of the things that are so helpful to us. Many of us have met this kind of suffering and wondered why it seems so tiring. You notice how many times Job says, let me just describe what this is like. I need rest. There is a toll of grieving in your life that cannot be explained as I went to CrossFit. I did a lot of push-ups. I played flag football. The despair and anguish of the soul that Job is experiencing is debilitating anguish. The kind that robs you of your very desire to get up and walk around. To make a sandwich is too much. He longs for rest. These are the kinds of words that characterize true suffering and despair and disillusionment. Darkness. Disorientation. Wondering about being blessed only to be at a loss later in life. Needing rest. This is what despair and depression looks like. And then finally, if he hasn't gone far enough into this dark spiral of despair, he wonders 
why he cannot simply die. This is an uncomfortable topic. We may ask questions like, well, is it okay for someone who fears God to think about death in this way, to long for it? Whether it is perfectly right or not, I think we can all say that this is a dangerous place to be. This is a deep and dark and honest place to be, and Job is wrestling with and wondering if it wouldn't be better if he just died. In verse 25, we get a summary, I believe, of everything that he's been experiencing and feeling and thinking up to this point. Job 3.25 is instructive for what it's like to live in a fallen world. We live, it's been said, we live in a world that oftentimes our fears do come true. Our worst fears, sometimes even our worst fears are not quite enough to get at the kind of devastation we're going to encounter Job 3.25, where the thing that I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. And I wonder if in addition to speaking about losing his livelihood and his, his family, his own health, I wonder if he is longing and thinking that what he fears is that the very hope of his existence will be stolen from him. I'm grateful. I get to the point by the time I'm at verses 25 and 26 where I just want to be sort of done with this. I think I've seen enough. This is, this is bare enough now, Job. You've, you've gone to places that I don't want to consider. I don't want to go there. And so I'm grateful when he stops. The question that remains for us, though, is what can we possibly gain from a chapter of the Bible like this? What can we possibly observe and pull from it that will help us? And I'm going to offer a few observations from Job 3. My hope would be that they would be helpful to you. I think that's okay for someone, right? We have a really great preacher. He wants to help us, right? I I think that's okay. I certainly don't want to harm you, so that's good. At least that's a start. Here's one of the comments and one of the things that we might be asking about this particular chapter that's difficult. Is Job sinning? Is he sinning in this lament? This matters to us. Because how many of us have maybe not gotten the courage to express these kinds of things verbally, but certainly have walked some of these paths in our hearts and in our minds? And the text to this point has brought up over and over and over again, what does chapter 2 verse 10 tell us? That in all this, in everything that he spoke up to this point, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, there's some confusion and some disagreement over this. Some people say that the reason that's included in chapter 2 is to show us that up to that point, up to verse 10, Job was doing fine. He did not sin with his lips, but all bets are off once chapter 3 starts, right? As soon as he begins to talk, that's where you get in trouble. Many of you have that particular malady, right? Everything's fine. It's just until you begin to talk, right? And then you start to get into trouble, This is a proverb. This is wisdom from God. Where there are many words, transgression is always present, right? So some people think that that's what's happening in chapter 3. I actually believe that for the most part, we do not see God condemning Job in his speech. In fact, one of the reasons we can learn from lament is because it seems as though God is pleased. Pleased with Job engaging what he's honestly thinking. Job is in a battle and a fight for his trust. And there's a sense in which this pleases God. Look at Job 42, verse 7. This is one of the hints where I would say to you, I don't want to say that Job is sinning, even in his honesty and his craziness here in Job chapter 3. 
In Job 42.7, this is actually the second place where this sort of thing shows up. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. We're going to find out about his three unhelpful friends next week. Against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Somehow, in the midst of this entire book, God finds a way to commend Job, even in his questioning, in his lament, in his honest wrestling with what he desires and what he trusts. So I think the answer to the question, is Job sinning now, seems to be emphatically, somehow, in some way, no. Certainly to live here, to stay here, if years and years go by and Job finds himself not simply wrestling with despair, but making peace with despair, then there would be reason for him to consider and say, this needs to be instantly repented of. But God seems to love, to desire, to want to hear from his children, even in the midst of their suffering. I think this is the first takeaway, first observation from Job chapter 3 in his lament is this particular fact. You can talk to this God. You can talk to Him. We have a God who cares for you, who counts the hairs on your head, who cares for sparrows that fall from the sky. You can talk to this God. If there's anything Scripture tells us from the history of Israel all the way through to the end is that God seems to have an unending patience for hearing the whining of His children. He longs to hear from us. All of the wailing of the prophets in the Old Testament. Everywhere you turn in Psalms, you're bumping into another song of lament. Jesus Himself desperately pleading in the garden. And in all of these things, we need to remember and say that God is a God who can be spoken to. That He is in relationship with His people. And we need this sort of reminder because we live in a broken world. And if you determine in your heart that you will only speak to God and connect with Him and describe how you're feeling to Him when things are going well, you will have a life that is a roller coaster. You will not be able to encounter God, to experience Him, to have an an experience of the blessings of God for you in the Gospel if you believe that when things are broken, you cannot speak to Him and be honest. And this is not what we are learning from the laments. In fact, I believe that we would be a stronger church. One of the reasons these are in here, we can learn from the honesty of Job because one day you will encounter this kind of lamenting. It's rare that a church desires to say, yes, sing me the great songs of lament. And yet it's not a mistake that when God gave us a songbook in the Bible, so often it screams of honest suffering and lament. One of my professors at RTS had this to say about particularly these psalms that are crying out and whining. He called them psalms of disorientation. This is Mark Futado on psalms. Our lives are not always well-oriented. The laments or songs of disorientation were written for times such as these. There are times when you may feel tremendously perplexed or utterly forsaken or paralyzed by fear, or overwhelmed with anger, or lost in despair. And the Psalms of disorientation give us permission to, and show us how to, let the tears and feelings flow. 
This is one of the benefits of a book like Job, specifically a chapter like chapter 3. It instructs us in how to lament. And if you have not needed that yet, you will need it one day. Second thing, we begin to see the temptation immediately. This should not be surprising to you. That when you encounter tragedy and suffering, you will be tempted to make an idol out of the question, why? And in the midst of your longing and your desiring and your reasoning, you will long not for God, but for reasons. And how many of us have attempted to counsel people where in their desperation and sadness, one of the saddest things is to hear people grasping and groping for reasons. Well, I think it was because of this. I don't know. I think it was because of this. Well, God must have done this because of this. And in their attempts to justify and give reasons, you feel a deeper and a deeper sadness come over you because you realize there's a temptation to make an idol out of why. The crazy thing about this is that we don't know why. Job himself never finds out in his earthly life, never finds out why. Six times in Job 3, six times he says, why? 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 And so you should not be surprised when you encounter someone suffering that you will need to engage them on the questions of why. You should not be surprised in your own soul. I think it's surprising to some people who have always been faithful, who say, I trust Jesus Christ and know who He is for me. They are surprised in the moments of their despair when they find themselves wrestling with doubt and saying, why? And in this lament, we learn to ask, why? but to not be surprised by it and to not make an idol out of it. The next thing that we can observe from this, one of the difficult things about preaching in the midst of Job is that we have to stop at all these awkward spots, right? Last week was sort of like, here's Job, he's blameless, he loses all his stuff. Have a great Sunday. Bye. Right? Now today, we're reading again, third chapter. He wants to die, everyone. This is how bad it is. He wants to die. How's your, how's your roast? You guys going to enjoy that today? Have a good day, Right? We stop at all these awkward spots, but we must remember this, and you must remember it in the moment of your lamenting and suffering as well. Lamenting happens in a story, and the end of the story has not been written yet. We are wrestling with Job in the midst of his pain and his suffering, but an end is coming. A definitive answer is coming, and in your story, in your suffering, you cannot see the end of the story that God is weaving and writing in your life. We must consider that this is not the end of our stories. But it is possible to believe. One of the temptations in lamenting and suffering and tragedy is to hear and believe the lie that how things are right now is how they always will be. It's one of the fears of those who are in despair. They believe that this is a carousel they'll never get off. But God is going to show us as we wrestle with Job and experience this book that it is not the end of the story. In fact, one of the things we can learn from lamenting is the major, major thing is that we must ask ourselves, where is this despair leading us? This is a good question for you. I believe that in times of trial, God intends to give you assurance. Isn't it amazing that in the darkest moments, if we took a poll in here and described all the tragedy you've encountered, all the sadness, that you would still hope in God. This is an amazing thing. This is a gift from Him. You are sustained by the grace of God in a way that is unthinkable. I sat with my brother after finding out that his son had a terminal illness. I flew to Phoenix to be with him and grieving. 
And I sat with him and he described how crazy it was to be simultaneously so angry, to be so sad, to say, I don't see where God is in this, and yet get up the next morning and pray to him. And that is an assurance to ask yourself, where is this despair leading me? The tragedy is that it would lead you away from God's people and God himself. But what we see is so often despair, it leads you closer to him. And we find that with Job. And then finally, we know, of course, that the point of suffering again and again and again is to point us to the one and definitive answer that we do have for evil and suffering in this world. God's answer to your individual personal suffering might not come in an exact reason with names and times and dates. But by faith, you can claim that the definitive answer for your suffering is the cross of Jesus Christ. That God has moved and acted to write the end of a story that for you is working your good. That is the message of Christianity. That is the end of despair for all those who call upon God as His children. And if you look back and see the fabric of your life and all of the lamenting and all the despair, my hope is that God gives us grace to look back and see how it led us again and again and again to the place of anguish and suffering, the cross. This is a quote from one of my favorite pastors. His life was tragically cut short at age 29. In one of his journals, Robert Murray Machine wrote a profound, simple, small sentence, and it's my longing when I despair. This is what he wrote to a friend. This day, 11 years ago, I lost my loved and loving brother and began to seek a brother who cannot die. This is the place that despair will ultimately lead those who are his because God loves us and is with us and is for us.